Today's podcast is brought to you by drinkers like you. To help support the show, visit patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. Bonjournio. So I speak the most Italian, so I thought it would be good to set the mood for an Italian wine. We've got millennia of history and styles to go through, so we need to get started, but all I can think about is the panini and the tiramisu waiting for me later. Now, let's just go ahead and have a drink and maybe a snack, too. Welcome to Have a Drink, the show where you learn along with us about what you drink. I'm Brittany Lee Walker. I'm Justin Frazier. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. Oh, God, no. <laughs> that was great. You, you really oh, sound man. like I'll be using this tone for the rest of the show. Do not. Please do not. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Golly, guys. What y'all been up to? Well, Gadzook, Sarge. Oh, God. I will uh, I will end this stream. She's going to have a handle <laughs> sitting over there. She has the button. She yeah, will do like it. I will, I will end this. Oh, synchronized bar. <laughs> oh, yeah, it happens. The bell. The bells. We live our life by the bell. Yeah. Cowbell. Yeah. We, we always got to have more. All right, Casey, uh, what have you been up to since last week? Brewing, brewing, brewing. I've been uh, taking care of some brewing business that I have been neglecting over the past few weeks. Oh. And finally got a, let's see, I've got a Whiskey double drink. IPA. Got a lager drink. <laughs> I do have a lager. I finally got that Mexican lager in. Uh, I've got an IPA, Imperial IPA in, and a rebrew on the New England IPA to prove that it was actually the water that caused the issue. So uh, I'm rebrewing that one just to make sure, but everything looks good so far on it. Noise. Yes. So got that. And then we're also moving. Yeah, so, I was gonna say, like that makes the brewing probably a little trickier. Uh, well, the good thing is we actually have a brew shed in the new place. It's oh. an actual house on like half acre land. So um, I got a, a brew shed there with a floor drain. Oh. I'm so excited. I'm going to have to run my own electric out there. But other than that, everything looks to be pretty good. Um, we've just been... Uh, Working on getting everything packed up to move, and that's been super stressful. Just trying to clear out everything that you've accumulated over five years and picking it up to take to another place. Yeah, no joke. (laughs) As you you may or may not be able to see, I've already acquired uh, or not acquired, but I've already taken my whiskey collection and and maneuvered it over the past week. So uh, even the Discord, you got to see that picture. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. it was an entire carload of boxes of liquor. Yep. Do you just... have, any, have any open bottles in the car? <laughs> Excuse uh, me, sir. Any open bottles? About 200. 
Which one of them it'll take to buy you off? <laughs> you can't have the Weller. <laughs> I'll take the ticket before I give you the Weller. Seriously? You're careful not to drop the uh, Utopias bottle, right? I mean, uh, I actually still have the Utopias bottle, and then two uh, the previous uh, two special bottles that are unopened still here. So I didn't take that stuff with me on that run. I wanted to make sure to take it kind of a special trip, yeah, so it didn't playing and break or anything so the, yes. the new setup uh is going to feature anything that you've not already had or in the brew shed um i am potentially looking at changing over to an all-electric setup hmm. um that's not going to be cheap it's going to be like 1500 bucks probably to, to set it up like that well, so i'm going to wait uh, and that's just for the, the actual brewing side of it not even counting i've got a find a place to run um 220 or 240 uh 60 amps out to the shed as well so i'm working on on finding a way to do that economically and potentially get it set up the way it needs to be i may uh, know uh the name of a good uh well he was an apprenticed electrician uh could probably get you hooked up is he is he journeyman now he probably is by now. It's been think, like a decade since. So yeah, maybe master at this point. Yeah, so I yeah. think he could get you hooked up. Literally. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I noticed they had put in something in the back, or it was either there and they put it back on, or or it was a two forty hookup in the back of the place that. I thought it may have went to the septic tank, but it looks like it may be going to a pump to the sewer system. But I was hoping that it wasn't. I hope it was. I was hoping it was just an open circuit that I could hook right into and be good to go. But uh, may not be the case. We'll see. All right, Bob. What have you been up to? Uh, dying mostly. Uh, <laughs> no, I've had the same kind of general cold and allergies for the last month i feel the, like the general uh, crud yeah i noticed yeah. that cough still hanging around it's always the cough that's like never wants to leave i i can mostly breathe so it's it's been better uh but uh i did i did take a little bit of time this this week to try to make sure i had some some pretty nice beers uh, some nice drinks i had sitting around uh one of them uh was the the uh be a lot cooler if you did uh, from Streetside Brewery. Uh, I love that name. Cooler if you did. Yeah, the Imperial Berliner Weiss with uh, uh, Mont Montmorency. I, I don't know with cherries and vanilla. Uh, it is delicious. Amazing. Uh, that beer is great. Yeah, I picked that up at you guys at your guys's uh, uh, baby shower and realized I still hadn't tried to drink it yet. And I was like, oh, hmm. let's go. I mean, you could have had uh, plenty of it on draft the day of. I may have, but I don't remember. Um, yeah, because we were peer pressuring everyone to drink because we had not hit the tab minimum. We had less than an hour and we had not hit the tab minimum. And I was wondering what we were going to do. Uh, but uh, Stay I, longer. Yeah. <laughs> I also had uh, the... Uh, my dad had gotten, uh, gotten me some... Uh, uh, McKenna tenure before it flew off all of the shelves. Oh, nice. And I've been hanging on to it. I was like, you know, when someone comes over and I stopped, looked at it, it's like, I don't get guests. Let's crack this bad baby, <laughs> bad boy open. Mm. 
And uh, oh, it's so good. So good. We still have what half a bottle? <laughs> what a McKenna? Oh, we got a little over half a bottle. Yeah, yeah, we got like two thirds of a bottle of McKenna. I baby that McKenna. I'm not like uh, everyone uh, being oh. like buying cases of it whenever it. Yeah, Casey, you could no. build a ship in a bottle with that thing. Oh uh, no, it's so empty. Build a <laughs> build a warehouse in a bottle. So that we should make that a thing instead of ships. Start building little bourbon warehouses. Sure. In bottles. How will we get them out? You never get them out. You age little tiny whiskey barrels inside. <laughs> They're for mice. <laughs> Those mice get wasted. Then we'll, then we'll have a story on the blood alcohol content of mice. And... Mice. Yeah, okay. I've recently moved I've moved all of my, my liquor from like various cabinets into like just on the table in the living room. And I'm like, you know what? This is fine. <laughs> That's how it it's a lot more visible. How it starts, and you look and you say, "Man, that's that." I thought it was bigger than what it is, and you know, you start adding two or three bottles here or there, and then someone tells you you have a problem, and you start hiding it back in the cabinet <laughs> again. Yeah, Can't well, really like see I had scotch that anymore. I was just keeping for myself, and I just didn't realize it was there. So that's when I was like, "Okay, I gotta, I gotta put this out where I can see it." Hmm. You know what? You got <laughs> a point to drink there. More. I've got some Johnny Walker that sits at the back of the shelf, and I don't really, I, I haven't even opened it. Oh, it's just in the there back. Shame. Well, it's, a, the, it's the Jane it's Walker. It's the Jane Walker. Yeah. So oh, okay. uh, I'm yeah. iffy on opening that because it, it was like limited run and that stuff. It's just for the packaging, so we could drink the liquid. Yeah, but if you're on opening right. that, what, have, what about you? What about you guys? What have we been up to? I don't know. Uh, work. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> We've been rearranging the apartment to start. Mm. Getting getting ready. Today. Getting ready for the baby. Uh, had to move some things around. I uh, wasn't really keen to move. But, you know, might as well get on it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, guys, I looked at my work schedule and realized how close we are to Oktoberfest. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two flipping weeks. It's, it's coming mm. fast. And Literally I'm, two weeks from today. It's insane. So that, I can't say that's the one thing I've been up to. Uh, training, getting ready for Oktoberfest. <laughs> so there is dun, a dun, training regimen. Yeah. No, that's it. Only instead of eggs and running, it's just like chugging a bunch of beer. And he's trying to make room in the fridge, so. And you got to make room in the fridge to cram more beer in the fridge. We're already pl- we're already planning like a, a Costco run the weekend before, nice. uh, to go get snacks and you know, things like that. And, and then, Costco uh, sells Costco bottled water, Costco sized <laughs> packages of Sam Adams Oktoberfest. So. Oh. True. 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 Like a special packaging run just for Costco. Basically a keg. <laughs> What does one do at Oktoberfest? Well, so what that doesn't is one do? a great point you bring up. Uh, so we have a friend who once asked us when we invited him to come with us down to Oktoberfest Zinzanati, uh, America's Oktoberfest, the biggest Oktoberfest in the country. And he's like, what do you do down there? And it's like, you drink and you eat. <laughs> and he's like, so that's it. It's like, well, you, you get a beer and you get a sausage. And then you get in line to get another beer and another sausage. <laughs> That's the day, uh, and it's a good day. That's some, I mean, it's a good day. It's a good. It's a good day. Drunk of, it's, of and being it's, around people. It's all kicked mm-hmm. off with Jim Cook from Sam Adams. He's there to cheer you on first thing. Being like, shalosh. Yeah, he's it's, there at like nine a.m. He's like, I need a beer, and they're like, We're not pouring any beer. He's like, It's all my beer. Why can't I get <laughs> like, one? Give me a beer. He, he tried to keep him. From from getting the beer, and Every that day. does not work. They were like, this is the ceremonial keg. We tapped this at the beginning. He's like, I'm tapping it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
We always get there. when I say. <laughs> we, we get there at the, at the start, uh, at 11 a.m. Got to be there and... at, the, we're at what Disney would call the rope drop. Yeah, we're at the, we're at the rope Go! drop. Go! And we're like, ah! And, and we watch, and, and you know, it's not always like super entertaining, but we watch the, the opening ceremony, as it were. Um, which they t- they talk about all the different like German societies in the area, and <laughs> we make yeah. I make an inordinate amount of jokes that the German people would not approve of. <laughs> Probably not. They would not. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, the Jim Cook thing, and then uh, Cincinnati uh, has a a huge German heritage. And then the biggest thing about our Oktoberfest also is that. Um, the usually the mayor or some kind of representative from from munich germany someone from comes City down Council. yeah, yeah. They, they come down and uh help also kick off the festivities because they're they've labeled us as like the sister city and and you know the the other G- big Oktoberfest. um yeah. i i'm still planning on going this year but i will be going for the food and probably not staying as long as we usually do um we usually leave, we get there when it when it starts and then like usually leave around uh, by before four p.m. When you see people being drugged by their friends through the street or throwing up in the corner, it's time for you to call it a day. Yeah, because things are about to get out of control down there, and then we retreat back somewhere else safe to drink and nap. We're we're there when there's a reasonable crowd of people. When we. Like, then at five or like, because if you're there after four p.m., I was, was going to say when the crowd becomes unreasonable for a number of reasons. Uh, yeah, yeah, so the crowd at that point is you're waiting like a half an hour to get a drink. It's not it worth gets, it. Yeah, it's not worth four it. Four hours, four yeah. hours to go to the bathroom. I was going to say not to mention the bathrooms, which it is gets, just a line of porta potties. It gets bad. So we we've adopted this. Uh, get there when the when it all starts and when mm-hmm. all the taps open. Have a time to just walk around and like not have to like push people out of the way. It's not too hot. It's just you only push people out of the way because you want to at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a it's not a force, you know. <laughs> um, and th- yeah, that is the thing. Right as of right now. The weather is forecasting it to be, like, in the the mid, in... mid to high 70s. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And we're like, all suck. yes. Oh, <laughs> tell, t- tell me it's an overcast day. Uh, I can only hope. <laughs> right now, they're only showing the forecast up to that Friday, and it's okay. showing a chance of rain on that Friday. Don't know yet. Hopefully yeah. that's going to fade out. But for the running of the wieners, we might have some yeah. rain. But we're talking about all this, and we've not even started the actual announcements. <laughs> yes. So, uh, we do have uh, just a few to go over this time. So, our next episode is going to be Back to Beer Styles. <laughs> um, so, sa- Saturday, September 15th, we'll be covering Barley Wine. Uh, that's going to be live, of course, here on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern and posted on the stream or on the feed afterward. Um, yeah, it's been a minute for Beer Styles, I think. Um, I miss it. I miss it so. <laughs> Even though barley wine makes you think like you're somewhat closer to the thing we're already on right now. <laughs> for this really. Um, Inch and mill shorts. Spunk <laughs> that's, water, spunk water. That's a deep cut to just wow. spunk water, spunk water, swalleries, warts. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, and uh, we also wanted to mention or, or set a reminder, I suppose. Um, we are still doing the extra life campaign with. Um, diamond club and and ritual misery podcast specifically uh if you want to um our link for our page is on uh, our twitch channel and you can go to that um that is going toward the children's miracle network and um the goal is 
what, $5,000? Yes, uh, I think the goal overall is going to be $5,000. Our personal goal is $1,000. We would love it if you guys could help us get to that. Again, we don't see any of that. It's all going to yes. charity. So we are currently winning on donations. Just to, It's not winning, but if it were a competition, I would say we're winning. And usually, like, that'll go up, let's say, for New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is the big thing. So New Year's Eve, uh, there will be a number of us streaming for 27 hours straight. We'll try and grab a couple of those blocks and wait. Yeah, we need to look into that, actually, because they're they're already Mm -hmm. getting that set up and stuff. Yeah, I don't know when they're going to get the schedule hashed out, but we'll do something special, a big tasting and all kinds of fun stuff. That's when uh, a lot of the money gets raised, but we'd love to get more of the money raised before we even get to New Year's Eve, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good goal. And then um, finally on the announcements, it is the final movie draft update <gasps> for the summer 2018 movie draft. Crazy Rich Asians made a billion dollars, right? <laughs> oh, um, close to it. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's find out. Welcome to your final BT Movie Draft Minute, presented by DiamondClub.tv, for the week of September 3rd, 2018. I'm your host, Big Voice Jay. Hey, is it just me, or do y'all smell pumpkin around here? Summer must be over. Let's go to the scoreboard! Team Walking Drunk is in 6th place with $405.2 million. Team Game Night is in 5th place with $582.4 million. Team Retro Misery is in 4th place with $754.1 million. Team The Vod Squad is in 3rd place with $784.8 million. Team Have a Drink is in 2nd place with $884.6 million. And the King of the Mountain, it's Team Movie Party with $1 billion. Forty-two point three million dollars. That's your movie draft minute. Big ups to Stephen Cogswell for tonight's music. All totals are accurate as of September eighth, two thousand eighteen. Oh, first of all, I'll... thank you, huge, huge thank you to Big Voice Jay who has been sending us a special weekend uh, version of this um, movie draft update. Yes, thank every you. week. Thank you so much, Jay. This has been amazing because we are the only losers who stream on a weekend because we have nothing else to do. <laughs> <Yes>. Everyone else <laughs> has. Yeah, they have social lives and things to do. Let's on a talk weekend. about that. <laughs> the rest of us are just like, oh, Saturday night. Let's do that. So everyone else can do one one thing for the week, and then Jay has been recording a special one for us uh, throughout the entire draft. Because we are so separated from everyone else in the time that we stream. Yeah. But, and it's been oh, incredibly so helpful. Glad that he does. He's, yeah. he's the best. And he does an amazing job, I just have yeah. to say. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. It's been fantastic. And then, yeah, Stephen Cogswell in the music on this one. Yeah. He's a national treasure. So, Free choice. He, he is. so cheers. This one's for you, Jay. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Hmm. Also, uh, I'm going to miss the movie. 800 million. Updates. Not bad. Yeah, second place is fine. So the buzz, <laughs> I do have to give props uh, to Casey on the Crazy Rich Asians thing because I have it like word of mouth is starting to spread now. I've heard people at work and all kinds of people starting to go on about. Oh, I, th- I think it, like a bunch of the girls at the call center have come up to me and been like, "I think I have a new favorite movie." <laughs> so Crazy Rich Asians is building an audience. And I think if we had had another, like if it had been released earlier and it had the time to build, it may have actually really generated some money for us. Could have been a pretty decent sleeper. 126 million right now, domestic. That's not bad at all. No. Um, yeah, I, and there was no way we were catching up to the, the, the billion oh, that, no. uh, 
Well, a billion, they were, what was it, a billion what? Almost one and a half billion. Okay. No, I think it was like a billion and forty something. Yeah, like not that... one billion four hundred, but one billion forty. So they were either way oh, forty. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. They were within like three hundred mil of us. Like they're yeah, that was uh, that was gonna be a thing. Like if we'd had one other hit, we could have we'd have still been in that. But and their their big thing is because they got Incredibles two, which of course was like the biggest animated movie. Not to mention much, but just a big movie. Like I mean, everybody went to. Had, I think everybody went to. Good, they had a good lineup. Yeah, like that was just a good choice. So they um, did. Bravo to them. Good job. Uh, yeah. Applause. Good job. Good All job, around. everybody. It was. It was good a, keeping up with everybody during the the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah, when, was, when does the winter one normally start? Um, bu- 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 what? Probably October. October will be end of October. I'm assuming. Or I, I, you know what? I bet it's early October because you want to get those uh, those Halloween movies in. Incredibles 2 made $603 million. But how much Alone. did... I'm not surprised I want to go, that. how much did Avengers Infinity War make? And it's like... 678. So yeah. Incredibles 2 was $75 million short. And they got so they it had... for probably half the price. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Like, they got a yeah. stupid thing on that. So it was a in... movie party who won, right? Yes, the one that made the most sense to be the winner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to, uh, you know, pick the right name at the very least. Buena um, Vista released Avengers, Incredibles, and Solo, all three. So they had three movies in the top five this in Q2. Wow, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that now, like, okay, yeah, good job. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me wonder what That's the, uh, what the, I'll have to go back in and put in the data, but what the pay versus return on investment was. Yeah, mm. I'm sure that's somewhere. Uh, we could we, probably, yeah. Because to see who had the best buy for the yeah, that would be really cool. Crazy rich Asians, what we say, one thirty. <laughs> I think it's yeah. one twenty six. One twenty six, and then we paid ten dollars for it. I think I don't recall. Uh, I've got eleven somewhere, but I'll have to find it. We paid eleven dollars for that. Solo went for twenty one. Incredibles two went for twenty seven. That was probably the buy of the year. Mm, yeah. And Jurassic World went for 42, while Avengers went for 66. Uh, Incredibles yeah. 2 was the win. That's what it comes down to. Right there. Hmm. All right. Well, hopefully uh, we can, we'll be invited to the, the winter one as well. And, and the, you know, it's been fun. So we'll, we'll get to keep up with that. There's a lot of stuff yeah. coming out this, like, in the coming season. I'm just, it's going to be nuts. Yeah. Well, I do believe we have some news to get into. Speaking though. of nuts. Speaking of things getting nuts over at Miller Coors, they've decided to eliminate 350 jobs as part of company-wide restructuring. That's not that's not nuts. That's just depressing. Uh, so Miller Coors will eliminate 350 salaried positions across the organization by the end of October. The company announced today in a memo. <laughs> you can get that memo? Here's your memo, yeah. It's oh, a pink that slip. thing I sent you? It was a pink. Oh, thank you for the Extra Life donation. Oh, thank you. Uh, in the letter, CEO Gavin Hattersley uh, characterized the job as Miller Corps moving quickly and decisively to get our business back on track. To accomplish this, uh, accomplish this, we know we need to financially uh, financial flexibility to invest in our brands and solutions at the right level. Quickly capitalized on new opportunities and maintain a robust marketplace presence. So all the buzzwords, that that's clearly, they're like, we had to fire all these people because buzzwords cost money. 
Uh, our current fixed cost base limits our ability to do all of this. Again, buzzwords cost money. <laughs> As such, uh, Molson Coors U.S. Business is offering a voluntary severance program to existing employees, as well as eliminating 150 un wait unfilled positions. So I oh, guess wow. like they're just they're just not going to have those jobs anymore. Oh, okay, huh. just completely cutting. All right, uh, Miller Coors spokesperson told Brewbound uh, again where we sourced this. Uh, that the voluntary severance program allows people who may be ready to move on the opportunity to do so with a generous package. So it's too soon to say at this point. Can we give you a generous package? Indeed. Uh, at this point, what the exact impact will be to each function. The spokesperson added, uh, once we know who has elected to volunteer, leaders will receive uh, or will review requests against uh, the organizational design and determine how roles will be impacted. However, the company still plans to hire a new chief marketing officer to replace David Kroll, who left his post on July 27th. I uh, believe we reported on that one. Yeah. The new CMO's top priority will be turning around Coors Light. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> GLHF. Like uh, Hattersley letter uh, added that the company is committed to handling this restructuring with speed, dignity, and respect for all involved and without marketplace disruption. While we know we still have some challenges ahead, we're establishing a realistic, achievable plan for 2019 to put us on the path to long-term sustainable growth. According to the Miller Coors blog, the last time the company restructured was in 2013, so five years ago. Uh, during August's second quarter earnings call, Molson Coors uh, leaders conceded that the company would not meet a stated objective of right-sizing production volumes to return to flat uh, in 2018. For the first six months of the year, the company reported a 2.2% decline in net sales to more than $5.4 billion. Uh, in the U.S., the company reported second quarter U.S. revenue and depletion declines of 3.1% and 4.8% respectively. At the time, Molson Coors CEO Mark Hunter said uh, reversing Coors Light's negative trends was urgent. So the company is kind of like all hands on deck, like the ship could be going down when you're looking at Coors Light and how bad it's doing. Hmm. Uh, on the same day that it reported those declines, Molson Coors announced the formation of a joint venture with a Quebec cannabis company, uh, Hexo, a recreational cannabis sister brand to the Hydro... Why are they coming up with these names? The Hydropothecary, a licensed producer and distributor of medical cannabis. So I'm guessing that is the big uh, the big trend we're seeing now is all these conglomerates that have been dabbling and buying up into craft beer uh, are now dabbling and buying up into uh, cannabis because we had uh, constellation make uh, again they made the the biggest purchase of a craft brewer and now they've That's made they, they made the biggest purchase of a cannabis company like they just throw large sums of money at things and go it'll work out <laughs> it'll get there eventually but I guess in the case uh, for Constellation Brands and their purchase of uh, Ballast Point, yeah, it did kind of work out because out of all the, what was it, out of all the purchased 
craft brands, uh, Ballast Point is actually like raking in the cash. Yeah. So yeah. they may eventually break even or even make some money on that deal. A uh, week after reporting its second quarter earnings, Miller Coors also announced the decision to cease production of two hats, a light mm-hmm. beer brand targeted at 21 to 24-year-old consumers, a.k.a. millennials. <laughs> However, the company last week said it plans to launch Cape Line, a new line of low-calorie-flavored alcoholic beverages next spring. It's, I think we talked about it's the, okay. the closing of Two Hats and that on the news show. Yeah, uh, we did. Uh, I don't know if it was last we In a week At recently, some point. yeah, we have discussed that one. So you can catch that out over on Have a Drink News if you want to find out about that one. Uh, Miller Coors is the latest beer company to restructure in 2018. In August, Constellation Brands terminated about 60 of its 100 or so craft and specialty reps throughout the U.S. Earlier this year, uh, Ninkasi, Avery Brewing, Green Flash, New Belgium, and Pabst Brewing Company, among others, cut staff. Uh, And I will go ahead and say, shameless plug, if you want to go ahead and check out uh, Have a Drink News, we had a big thing about a upper brass shifting over at Pabst. Mm, a lot yep. of some moves happening over there as well. Like all it's these, not, it's not just the common man losing their job. <laughs> yeah, like it's all the way up. White collar, blue collar, everybody, all the collars are getting Green affected. Collar, yeah. Short troops. <laughs> In 2017, Anheuser-Busch InBev, the world's largest beer manufacturer, eliminated as many as 350 sales positions, many uh, within its high-end craft division. Yeah, we talked about that last year. Uh, AB InBev had a complete restructuring. It seems like every six months they're completely restructuring everything but the Bud and Bush side of things. Like all the all their weird brands and everything they've acquired, they keep trying to move these things into different compartments and categories to make it work better for them but it never really seems to be. <laughs> uh, at the close of trading on Tuesday, Molson Coors stock was down 2.77% to 64.89. The stock is down from its 52-week high of $90.62. That's, that's actually a much more substantial drop when you put it in that. Yeah. Oh. And uh, another shameless plug. Uh on the weekend of Oktoberfest, we will be doing an episode on cores. Yeah. So that'll we be will. a fun one. And we're going to talk about uh, any differences uh, between the cores, the Miller cores, the Molson cores. You know what? We're going to do some investigating and figure out. But yeah. Who, uh, who shot JR? <laughs> so They're this really is, old reference. It, that's, a, <laughs> that's a pretty dated reference. So. That's what the kids come for. <laughs> This one, I, I I don't know. I'm just expecting these now. Yeah, yeah like, like this year. In addition, in is, addition to brewery shutdowns, it's it's layoffs. That's big layoffs and restructurings, and everyone's like, "Oh, we've overextended ourselves here. We got to pull back a little there." It's, it's like everybody got overzealous at once, <laughs> and we're like, "Whoa, whoa, well, whoa!" Because never mind. we talked about this at length before. How was it last year? Like. Uh, they said opening a new craft brewery was a sure thing, and banks and everyone were just throwing money at anyone who's like, I'm going to open a brewery. They're like, it's a sure thing. Just hit, shut up and take my money. And now There's it's... There's no such thing as a sure thing. It's not a no. sure thing anymore. And <laughs> now a lot of the big guys are even feeling that. Yeah, it's... 
I guess if I was expecting one of them to have some restructuring, it would be Coors. But it looks like, you know, everybody has had one pretty recently. Yeah, well, Coors had their worst day in 13 years back in May when the shares dropped 13% midday after they posted adjusted earnings of 48 cents a share when it was estimated that they would be 80 cents a share. And Coors blamed it on weather and not being able to get the beer fast enough out to their distributors. So they would make the beer and then it would just sit around because they couldn't get it to their distributors fast enough. What may have been happening is they just weren't getting the orders that they needed to send it to the distributors. So there was some sort of foreshadowing back in May that things weren't good. And that 52-week high was back a year ago, literally. I mean, it's not like, oh, there was some place in the middle that had a high. Nope. A year ago was the highest. And if you if you look at the numbers further back, uh, it hasn't been – it peaked in 2016, in October of 2016. Oh, wow. And it's been falling ever since. Mm. Yeah. I, think, I feel like that's going to be a trend with a lot yep. of the big, big yeah. ones, too, is that they're going to – Numbers going to go down, and they're going to start cutting a lot of stuff. Uh, well, the problem here we are we're, we're couch quarterbacks or whatever, but right. the the problem sure is <laughs> that the companies that are out there are looking to change the system instead of adapting to the system, and so breweries like these, you know, Molson Coors and, and the big guys, ABM Bev. Constellation even, they're of the mind of, hey, we want uh, to make money off of craft, so let's just make something with the same yeasts that we've got right now or make something with with what we've got in house and, and the same grains that we've got in house, and that way we can um, we can kind of push the others out of the way by serving our easily approachable craft beer. Hmm. It doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not what craft beer is about. They're just going to have to understand that it's about more than just a beer being on the shelf and marketing behind it. It's about a lot more than that. Take marketing away from them though. What else do they have? (laughs) Well, that's, that's the old saying is that beer brewing companies are not, or the big beer companies aren't beer companies. They're marketing companies that happen to sell beer. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of what they're, they're not there for, you know, ABMF probably had it closest to being right with their purchase of wicked weed as bad as I hate to say it. I don't want to drink it, but the fact that they paid this exorbitant amount of money for a craft brewer that was already doing well, that they probably so far haven't done a whole lot to touch that beer. Although yeah. I've heard I've heard some negative things about Pernicious recently. It's again, it's coming because they're building again in upstate New York. They're building yep. a big sours facility, and it's pretty much known this is to so they can start canning Pernicious and get it mm-hmm. out nationwide and. While that excites me to get pernicious nationwide, to know that is it's going to be, you know, off brewed. So they're going to be taking control of brewing of that beer from Wicked Weed. So why can't Wicked Weed or why can't AB and Bev and, and Coors do something closer to maybe a model of may, maybe what what we see in Chicago with um Bourbon County Stout or something along those lines where they actually are producing something that is a really high end, high alcohol, kind of rare and hard to get beer on shelves. And that's what really drives it is the fact that it's hard to get. Um, 
the the rarity factor plays a lot there. Despite and, not actually being that hard to get, because you can find yep. most Bourbon County variants on shelves in places like Florida months after release because they're charging exuberant amounts per bottle. Yep. Well, it's it's that artificial scarcity of it. It only comes out during yeah during Friday. Friday. select and, time. And so, if I was AB and Bev or any, I would try a rare something. Their their whole mentality is let's sell as much as we possibly can. Well, you, I think you sell more and you drive more of that marketing mindset by restricting, even if it's an artificial restriction, but you restrict your your amount on the market. And it not only drives prices up, but it also puts some positive spin there that people are just dying to get your product. Mm-hmm. Now, that only works if the product's good. Yeah. So, so you could do that. Or at least with as they proceed. With some of the good. angels, like with yep. – uh, the Red Angel and all those other ones that they're releasing, those big barrel-aged sours, people go nuts for those. And I still yep. kind of do. With like, If you're out at a share in a line somewhere and someone comes down pouring those, you're not going to snub your nose at it. So but, if they were able to release that you know, quasi-nationwide yes. at a limited release and just be like, hey, uh, this is going to happen... And, you know, places are going to get X amount of, I don't know how you pick a day, because the Bourbon County thing, it was already set in before the buyout. They were releasing Bourbon County Stout yep. in their own footprint and everything on Black Friday, and that's how it built from there. And then they got bought, and then they just kept doing it. So yeah. I don't I don't know how you scarcity would... Scarcity is local. It's like politics are always local. Scarcity is always local. So you could be producing 100,000 barrels of one product. But if you spread it out far enough, you are able to kind of make that scarcity happen. Yeah, and well, we saw the same thing with uh, CBS last year, and I thought it was hilarious. That was a manufactured scarcity, not on the fault of founders. It was not for them. It wasn't their fault for not putting enough out there. But everybody they sent it to yeah. only released like half of the shipment that they got. They wanted to make it a big thing. And then they, like, I've gone back to some stores that I saw who had gigantic lines. They could have sold their entire stock. Every bottle that came in, they could have sold all (laughs) that CBS. And then, no, they decided to hold on to it, create a scarcity. And then months down the road, they'll randomly put four bottles out on the shelf. Yeah, I don't think that's smart. And then people come storming in, going nuts to get a hold of those four bottles that are now marked up in price. That, Yeah. That way they get money long term, not just yeah right out the gate. Well, the buzz comes around the other side. Yeah, you say you get these people on the on the line, especially in Cincinnati, and they say, "Oh, CBS is on the on the shelf at such and such liquor store. Let's all run down there and see." They put out four bottles to get that buzz going out. Then forty or fifty people come in looking for it. They know it's not going to be there, but they do buy. They grab a, a six con- pack of something yeah. else. They right? grab a, a consolation, consolation prize. Yep. Exactly. I'm already here. I might as well. It's it's to get you in the door. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, speaking of to get you in the door, <laughs> I think we actually uh, have a topic. Been on that truck. Been on that truck. Been on that truck. not that drunk. I mean, I think these grapes are making me pretty burpy. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> man, I'm going through a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so we are talking today about Italian wines. 
uh, wine. I was like, I don't know what wine is in Italian. Vino. Vino. Oh, vino di Italia. Sure. That would sound. That would sound right. I don't know if it is right. <laughs> we'll go with it. Sure. Uh, when talking about Italy and wine, it's important to note that Italy is the largest wine-producing country in the world. It outranks. Oh, pardon. It outranks France, Spain, as well as the United States. Italian wine culture dates back over four thousand years, probably due to the perfect climate Italy has for growing grapes and people letting grapes go bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even before the Greeks made their push into southern Italy, the drink had been part of the everyday life of early Italians. Uh, we call them Italians now, but the country had originally been named Onitoria? Onitoria? Onitoria. Onitoria. Uh, or Land of Vines by the Greeks. And who, an oniologist is, is a studier of wine. Well, I was going to say, the Greeks, who think they knew everything and didn't ex- nothing existed until they discovered it. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, from around the, around the 9th century uh, BC, the Etruscan civilization was prominent in Italy. Uh, in the 4th and 4th and 3rd centuries BC, it was uh, Italy, the Etruscans were overthrown by the Romans in the Roman-Etruscan Wars. Uh, both the Etruscans and Romans... Had, uh, that followed were quite interested in uh, in the skill of making wine. The Romans even had a god of wine, which they stole from the Greeks. Uh, <laughs> yep, Bacchus. like all the gods. Except you know, had to get rid of the old ones. They're terrible, like Jeff, the god of biscuits, and Simon, <laughs> the god of hairdos. But uh, Bacchus, which uh, to which wild festivals were held called Bacchanalia, which again, uh, pretty much similar to the. Uh, to the Greek god Dionysus. Except I think Bacchus was viewed a little differently. It was weird. A little bit. Uh, uh, Bacchus, I think, was... was seen... I don't think as negatively in Rome as he was in Greece because the Greeks had... Uh, what was it? They're, they're, uh, the, was it Maenads? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, who, that, those like, are Greek. would go around and have orgies and rip men to pieces. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, like which you if you watch True Blood, uh, the entire second season was based around uh, the main Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I watched that season. And there was an episode uh, of uh, Xena uh, about Bacchus mm-hmm. and and Bacchanalia, and they were basically made out to be vampires. I'm like, yeah. that's probably a little more accurate too, as far that, as that that vision of it was concerned. I keep you keep saying that, and all I hear in my head is the saying, "It's a regular Bacchanalia." Bacchanalia. Uh, anyway, the Bacchanalia were uh, was held with the char- characteristics of Bacchus in mind: uh, wine, freedom, and intoxication, and ecstasy. Woo! You know, it's really hard to get you know to be too down on a god like that. <laughs> I mean, Bacchus twenty twenty. Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, uh, the religious cult behind the festival was banned and restricted. Uh, only about uh, 14 years after <laughs> after its arrival in Rome, just showing how wild these parties must have been. Uh, Rome was uh, could had a reputation for being a bit stuffy at times, uh, but stuffy in the sense of like a Victorian England, where no one wanted to admit it that they were all doing it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, let's see, in uh, 186, sorry, 186 BC. <laughs> Sorry, I'm used to much later dates. Uh, (laughs) 
Roman senatorial legislation uh, to reform the Bacchanalia tried to c- control and seize the organization of the priesthood. Uh, non-contemporaneous historical writings of the festival probably stretch the truth a little bit in order to promote their own agendas, but the uh, Roman historian uh, Titus Livy alleged that these events were frenzied riots with sexual violence initiation. Uh, Sexually violent initiations of both sexes, all ages and social classes. Sounds like a good time. The social classes part is probably the thing that that annoyed the Romans the most. Yeah, yeah. like this is too inclusive. <laughs> no, those plebeians can't have any fun. They are to stay under my foot and act as my footrest. Hmm. Uh, anyway, he also uh, also the pictures of the group were uh, as a murderous cult uh, and an instrument of conspiracy against the state. Man, Rome loved them some conspiracies against the state. Uh, he claimed that thousands of cult leaders were arrested and executed. Uh, because of the strict rule and scaling back of the Bacchanalia, the festival merged with festivals to uh, Liber and Dionysus in the uh, late Republican era. Uh, the first treaties on uh, Italian wine were written in the uh, written in Punic, but were translated into Latin after the Romans destroyed Carthage in fourteen uh, uh, sorry in one hundred and forty six BC. Uh, this work became a major source of writing uh, material for all wine writings in Rome. Uh, I would also like to think of that as like, destroy everything here. We found something about wine. Destroy everything else in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep that. Keep that. Get rid of everything else. Cato the Elder was probably the first to write uh, a Latin work on wine in uh, 160 BC. He was also one of the most, one of the bigger supporters of the uh, destruction of Carthage. He was known for ending off his speeches with, uh, "Moreover, I declare Carthage must be destroyed." And I was <laughs> imagining that with purely municipal things. Uh, should we redo the roads out in front of the place, uh, Cato? I am in favor of this, and also Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> Thank you, Cato. That was his live Not long and remotely the point. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, he would be talking. Someone would be talking about irrigation, <laughs> and yes, yes, and Carthage must be destroyed. And then the crowd goes wild. He <laughs> uh, was able to see his dream uh, come to fruition, however, since he died in fourteen, uh, sorry, one hundred and forty-nine BC, three years before the destruction of the city. Yeah. But they made real sure that he would have been happy seeing it. Yep, <laughs> they made him proud. <laughs> Uh, Cato's work on wine was not only the earliest uh, on wine, but also the earliest surviving piece of Latin prose. I'd also like to point out that uh, his uh, descendant and uh, uh, for the uh, end of the Republican period, Cato the Younger, was also known to enjoy wine, although I don't think he wrote anything about it. (laughs) I think he drank it all. In it, he discusses uh, Cato the Elder discusses the production of wine on large slave ba- slave based villa estates, which suggests how important uh, vine cultivation had become in an agrarian co- economy that had traditionally uh, was subsistence on or subsistence farming. In 154 BC, wine production in the present day Italy was unlike any other uh, any other country. The cult- cultivation of wine uh, was prohibited beyond the Alps, and instead, wine was exported to the provinces. Gaul, or as you know it, France, uh, was one of the largest importers of Italian wine. This uh, area of northern Italy now contains France, Luxembourg, and Belgium, uh, and most of Switzerland and northern Italy as well as parts of the Netherlands and Germany. I was going to say, look, when you say Gaul, 
it can it's are you talking geographically historically what because when you say gaul it's has over time mentioned everything from southwestern spain all the way up into what is like present day finland yeah <laughs> like gaul uh, has meant a large area at different points in time <laughs> Rome was not great about saying uh, which peoples held which territories. It was they, just Rome and everyone else, and were, soon everyone else would be gone. under Rome. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were kind of racist, and they just said, oh, the Gauls, and it, that was just basically everyone north of them, the Gauls. It's also the problem they had with the word Celt. Yeah, oh, don't get me started on <laughs> Celt, and are we talking archaeologically, historically, geographically? It means so many different things, it's a mess. <laughs> yes. And we can all blame Rome. We can. Uh, one of the major reasons uh, wine was consumed in Gaul at such a high rate was the tradition of drinking it undiluted. Uh, wine was almost always mixed with water for drinking. Undiluted wine, uh, miram, as it was, consider, uh, was considered to the habit of provincials and barbarians. Rome, uh, Romans usually mixed one part wine with two parts water, uh, sometimes warm or even salted with seawater to cut some of the sweetness. Uh, <laughs> it's like yeah. a gosa in wine form yeah. <laughs> like gosas why would you put wine into it uh, the Greeks tended to dilute the wine uh, three parts or four parts water the intention was to enjoy the ascetic pleasure of wine to be intoxicating just enough to have the mild release from inhibition and uh, conversation stimulant uh, because I guess they didn't want to do beer uh, at the Roman Convivium, uh, there was a tendency to get drunk more blatantly than uh, Marshall, the Roman poet who mixed wine and water, equally declared, I can do nothing sober, but when I drink, 15 poets will come to my aid. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> the most comprehensive account of Roman viticulture comes from Columila, the prominent Roman writer in De Deere Rustica on country matters written around 65 AD. He discussed all discusses all aspects of the uh, villa system and wine production. The best wine he says is that which has been given the pleasure of its own natural quality. Although the pitch ha uh, that sometimes was used to seal the inside of an amphora is likely to have dissolved in the wine and impart some resinous taste. Now, viticulture was highly developed, and most of the practices which uh, Columula writes are still in use. Hmm. Uh, in 77 AD, while observing the eruptions of Mount Vesuvius, Pliny completed his natural histories uh, in book... All right, hold on. 14. Roman numerals. 14. 14. Yeah, I had to stop and look at it and go, all right, where's that I at? That's a 10, and that's a... Okay. Which side of the V uh, is the I on? Right. <laughs> uh, in book 14, he reviews the history of wine, uh, its viticulture and vinication. Uh, Pliny laments the increased population of cheap wines and the loss of quality vintages. Uh, it's like an old guy. <laughs> it used to be better back in my day. He wasn't called Plenty of the Elder because he was, you know, youthful. <laughs> uh, traditionally, the best wine was reputed to have been the Caucuban from Latium. Uh, it no longer exists. The neglected vineyards have been dug up by uh, having been dug up by Nero for uh, construction of a canal. Uh, Augustus was said to have preferred uh, Centine. In Pliny's time, the best wine was considered Falmarin. 
uh, grown in the slopes of Mount Flamorus in the border between Latium and uh, Campania. Man, I never thought all those, I never thought that Latin class was going to pay off. <laughs> Always. Distillation, uh, it was unknown in the ancient world. Wine, therefore, was the strongest drink of the Romans. Uh, Flanernian, Falernian, yeah, sure, was a full-bodied uh, with an alcoholic content as much as 15 or 16 percent. A white wine was aged 10 to 20 years until the color was amber. The fabled vintage of 121 BC was the same Falernian uh, that was a Falernian in the same year that uh, Opimius uh, was consul and had rebuilt the Temple of Concord. And it is this wine that Pliny says still survived, although concentrated uh, as to be barely drinkable in his own time <laughs> some 200 years later. Yeah, that's vinegar. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <sighs> you clean floors with that stuff. <laughs> he also speaks of... Uh, Optimian uh, Falernian being offered to Caligula that was 160 years old. Oh he probably gave it to his horse. <laughs> uh, vintage wines could be kept for uh, kept for uh, such lengths of the time because they were stored in amphora. These were larger, tampered, two-handled clay jars with a narrow neck that sealed the cork plastered over with cement Jeez. and held approximately 26 liters or almost seven gallons. Yeah, that's right. Cement sealed. How did you get that out, though? Like, I don't understand. With a you drink seven gallons at once. Yeah, a party. No, I mean, like, do you just like hold it, hold it over a vessel and then break it? You like, break the top off. Okay. No, nah, you probably just hold it over a vessel and like chip out the bottom. Hmm. Get a strainer between. And then maybe. That's how I. That's how I would do it. There was probably some sort of ornate dipping spoon i think it's <laughs> no i think it's they so it has a narrow neck and i think it's for a reason it's so that you just used a small concrete plug essentially is what went in the top and you uh. just had to basically break the neck if it was narrow enough and you just like hit it at the top with a hammer and just come off and then you're like hey and you start pouring hmm. party well vines were pruned and tended and the grapes cut and uh, brought in baskets to be stepped on or crushed in the wine press hmm. Just like just like Lucille Ball used to do. <laughs> yep. Or that one lady who fell off and goes, oh. Lucille too? <laughs> <laughs> I knew someone would get that. <sighs> so uh, the must then underwent fermentation and maturation. Uh, weaker wines were aged in large clay containers uh, known as dolia, partially buried in the floor. More full-bodied wines, such as those from Campania, uh, were fermented in the open air to promote the oxida oxidation characteristic of a mature wine. I just looked it up. Tap in the bottom. Oh. You would hammer, ah. ta hammer a tap in the bottom. Good job, ha. Bob. <laughs> there you go. He, he was on it. Uh, so that was what, according to Pliny, uh, to the sun, moon, rain, and wind... The wine uh, then was transferred to Amphora, uh, either for storage, sometimes in a warm, smoky loft to promote mm. aging, or for transport, which usually was by boat. It was cheaper to ship the wine from one end of the Mediterranean to the other than to haul it 75 miles over land, 
which is one reason why most vineyards tended to be situated on the coast or near major rivers. Makes sense. Uh, the eruption of Vesuvius destroyed some of the best vineyards in Italy. Who would have thought? Mm. <laughs> Growers uh, replanted everywhere they could. Uh, at times, even replacing fields sown for grain. I uh, bet sometime afterwards, the, that ground was real good. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got some volcanic soil. That stuff is good and fertile. Uh, by the time <laughs> Pliny wrote in the first century AD, Iberia, uh, another name for what we called Gaul, uh, was an important producer of wine, uh, and wine uh, first was beginning to be imported from Gaul. Oh, right there, they just it, got to from. It. That's the key. Yeah. From, from Gaul, not to yes. Gaul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with new vines being planted at Nar Narbonensis. 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 Yeah. It's, I knew it was a little different. Uh, Narbonensis. In the south, uh, viticulture would spread northward, and new vines were introduced that were more suitable to the region, one of which was Vitrusia, uh, uh, the sure. ancestor of Cabernet varieties. Hmm. Eventually, there was a glut with the intention of preserving the supply of grain and possibly to protect the domestic wine industry. Uh, Domitian? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just brain farted. Domitian banned yeah. in an edict of AD 92. We're, we just keep moving. <laughs> well, yeah. Those numbers. Like, it, it's slow. It's slow. But we're getting... We're, we might get to some triple and uh, quadruple digits. The planting of any One new day. vineyards in Italy and ordered the removal of half the vines in the provinces. When in AD 212, uh, Caracalla, sure. that's not one I'm familiar with, uh, conferred citizenship on all free inhabitants of the empire. It eliminated the privilege of cultivating vines that had been uh, pre... Oh my gosh. It's a prerogative. A prerogative. Oh yeah. Wow. It's your prerogative. <laughs> I, you can I've say got how to, you want to say it. I've got to stop drinking before we start doing the shows. <laughs> that's no. uh start drinking more things are things are a little blurry <laughs> so now all of those in the provinces were permitted to grow wine grapes man roman citizenship was a big deal back then too <laughs> like you couldn't be touched if you're a roman citizen pretty mm. much put the exact same thing on level as like starship troopers of being a citizen <laughs> like getting your citizenship meant a bit yeah so the history of wine in Italy uh, would likely be very different if it were not for the Catholic Church. Or maybe hey, the Catholic Church gotta, would be very different. Gotta, hmm? I was going to say, hey, you got to get that blood of Christ somehow. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Catholic Church would possibly be very different without the wine culture of Italy. Either way, both are intertwined in history. As the early Christian Church and Catholicism became more prominent in Italy, so too did the technology of wine. The need for uh, quality wines for the Holy Sacrament drove winemakers to refine their techniques throughout the Middle Ages. This move gave Italy a reputation for having very fine wines. Today, around 90% of Italy's population uh, identify as Catholic. Wine in Italy slowly grows and improves over the next millennia until a devastating outbreak of wine-vine disease throughout Europe. The grape Foliexra is almost microscopic aphid, 
like pale yellow sap sucking insect that feeds on the roots and leaves of specific strains of grapevines. It just so happens that the majority of vines in Europe are the variety uh, Vitus vinifera. In the late 19th century, botanists from England would travel to the New Americas and collect specimens of the native grape species. These varieties included Rhodotundifolia or Muscadine. So the Muscadine summer grape, frost grape, fox grape, and... Also known as Labrusca. 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 Mustang grape and sand grape. I like the the other names for them the best. Very very strong sounding names to these grapes. So uh, the American grape varieties had built up some immunities and resistances to the grape uh, Foliextra, but the European grapes had never been exposed to the creature and were were vulnerable. Uh, along with the live plants brought back from the Americas, the botanists brought back a few uh, Foliextra which multiplied quickly and nearly wiped out an entire industry. So, uh, kind of, kind of them going, our bad. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't bring stuff from other areas into a new ecosystem. These are, and these guys are mostly those well-to-do, well-off. I've got a lot of money, so I pretend to be a scientist and travel the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how you had scientists back then. Early on, it was, but. Well, it's, uh, you know, like. Oh, we're going to bring back these new grapes. Do we bring anything else back? I mean, what could we possibly bring back? Why is everything dying? Yeah. A witch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at this cute little gray squirrel. It wouldn't hurt anything to bring it. Uh, in 1863, the first vines uh, began to deteriorate inexplicably in the southern Rhone region of France. Uh, the problem spread rapidly across the continent. In France alone, total wine production fell from 84.5 million hectoliters in 1875 to only 23.4 million hectoliters in 1889. Wow. Some estimates hold that between two-thirds and nine-tenths of all European vineyards were destroyed. That's pretty nuts. And you're just like, good yeah. job, guys. Jeez. So that's, <laughs> that's like if you multiplied the fire at uh heaven hill which destroyed what was it like two percent of the world's bourbon supply if you multiplied that oh by a lot 45 times if half the state of kentucky had burned in that fire then it would have been equal to this so in france one of the desperate measures of grape growers was to bury a live toad under each vine to draw out the poison yeah no it's perfectly so good feeding with leeches to cast the devil out of it. Uh, I have to do a quick aside. It's things like this. I st- tried to start watching, um, crap lore. Oh, based on the podcast, and it just made me so angry because that's all it's full of. It's like, oh, look at these people from the Industrial Revolution who believed in this weird folklore that would cure their family from tuberculosis, and you're like, no, you're an idiot, and your entire family's going to die. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, areas with soil composed principally of sand or uh, schist were spared, and the spread was slowed in dry climates, but gradually the aphids spread across the continent. A significant amount of research was developed to finding a solution to the foliexra problem, 
and two major solutions gradually emerged. Uh, grafting cuttings onto resistant rootstocks and hybridization. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say hybridization, usually the key to these kinds of things. Uh, kind of how the Irish rebounded after the potato famine. Hmm. Hybridization involved breeding the European varieties of grape with the partially resistant American varieties in an effort to pass along the qualities of uh, the Americans' resistance while retaining the wine qualities of the European. One major issue was that uh, botanists ran into uh, the breeding was in part random, and the American varieties would pass along flavors that were off-putting to the European palate. Darn genetics being random. <laughs> yeah, not being able to control that. Uh, grafting... Apparently there was some way to genetically modify these things back then. <laughs> <laughs> grafting became a quick and efficient way to save uh, qualities of the European grape while also gaining resistance. An American grape vine root uh, stock and lower portion would be spliced onto the upper portion of the European grape variety. Uh, this gave the plant resistance while never interfering with the genetic makeup of the actual grape and wine. This technique is also used to bring European varieties of grapes over to the United States for growth in California and other regions, where they are now being smoked. <laughs> You know, it gets that extra flavor there. Exactly. You need your Roush wine. <laughs> Italy is quite protective. It tastes like ham! <laughs> Italy is quite protective of its agricultural products from uh, cheese to vinegar to wine. In Italy, there are really around four major classifications for the application or Appalachian system of the system of classification of wines. Uh, the most gen generic production label is Vinny. These wines can be produced anywhere from the European Union and are basically just generic wines. It will only say the color of the wine, like <laughs> red, white, or rose. Rosé. Well, I Sorry. didn't have the... Yeah. Uh, the accent mark. Sorry. No, accent I, can't, I don't know what to type for an accent when I'm typing. <laughs> Sorry. Rosé. Uh, won't contain a geographical origin or variety of the wine. So there's a, there's a big uh, hint. When you're out shopping for your wine. I'm going to guess that the next category is... So we had Vinny. What about Vetti? Vinny, Vichy? Vichy? No. 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 The, the no? Oh. None of those. Uh, oh, next, <laughs> next is the more specific... He's uh, talking about Caesar. <laughs> next is the more specific Vinny Veritel, Veritali. Or uh, Verid... Varietal? Varietal. They say they, they spell it one way, and they're like, or it's spell it completely different. Uh, these are made with at least 85% of a single grape variety, usually an internationally recognized variety, like uh, Cabernet Franc, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Chardonnay Merlot. The, 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 all the things you've heard of. <laughs> like Sauvignon Blanc, yeah, it, it's just all, everything you've heard of. Uh, these can, again, be produced anywhere in the European Union, which is why they're what you've heard of. <laughs> and again, uh, the location in which they were produced will be undisclosed. Ooh, the Vinny IGP are wines produced in specific territory and follow a series of specific, precise regulations on authorized varietals or varieties. Uh, viticulture and vinification practices... 
Oh, I'm too drunk for this. <laughs> organoleptic. What case? Yeah, said? I'm organoleptic after trying to read that. <laughs> it's not just me at this point. That's <laughs> oh, the best. Uh, and chemical... the definition. What? It's the definition. Oh. The definition is giving you an epileptic seizure from an organ. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, chemical physical characteristics, labeling, instructions, etc. As of 2018, there exists more than 150 IGPs. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> this category yeah. is fairly new and was developed in the 1980s to include a type of wine called Super Tuscan. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm just picturing a, a wine bottle with a cape. I mean, I just picture an Italian drunk wearing a cape stumbling. I'm picturing I'm picturing two uh, two Italian winemakers putting a bottle into a spaceship as their planet is exploding. <laughs> oh my god! Just sending it off to nice. Okay. The yellow sun will feed this wine. <laughs> this wine. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead, Jim. <laughs> This wine is a red blend from Tuscany that did not meet the exact specifications of the last category, which is much more strict. Super Tuscans were a, high, <laughs> were a high quality wine, but did not use only the specific grape varieties uh, required in the Tuscan region. Super Tuscans may use, dun, Merlot, dun. <laughs> may use Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Syrah. Uh, in addition to the normal varieties of uh, Sangiovese Sangiovese and Cabernet Franc, uh, the quality. So, of... the the key here is that Merlot, Cab Sauvignon, and Syrah are not Italian. Oh. To begin with, and Italian wines usually had to, but prior to this, had to be Italian grapes. These grapes came from other places. Most of them came from France, and so they didn't fit into the last category here very well. So they made a whole new category for them because they were delicious and and were better than just the normal table wines. So they needed something. <laughs> they to... were better than the wines that like you know they were working real hard on. So they're like, oh okay. yeah. I mean, it's it's basically you know how we you say bourbon has to be from yeah yeah, yeah no it, it's that sort of same category. Someone made a really good you know. Right, but it didn't but... use 51% corn, yeah, and so... it was delicious, so they had to make it a different category for it. The basically. very moment someone does that, we'll go, okay, that's a super bourbon. <laughs> no. No. It's never been... That it's... implies it better than bourbon. We're going to call it never super, super whiskey. whiskey. Yeah. It's never happened. Just, it... still, just still below bourbon. <laughs> Quality of the wine is outstanding, which was not represented in the Italian system. So the Italians added the Vinny IGP system to denote the difference. All right. Uh, the last and most specific of the regulated regions is the uh, Vinny DOP, or Protected Designation of Origin. The category can be further split into the DOC, or Controlled Designation of Origin, and the DOCG, or Controlled and Guaranteed Designation of Origin. That's not how acronyms work. <laughs> well, the DOP they do in those is language, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's in Italian. Uh, Italian, the... those acronyms will work just fine, but in English, yeah, I have to stare at you and go. Now, look, <laughs> we only speak one language around these parts. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> the major difference between these categories is time and success of the region. DOC <laughs> wines must have been IGP wines for at least five years. They generally See, come... I was going to say, when you said the difference of these is time, and I just like, if I could keep time in a bottle. Wow. Uh, who goes to that mm. song? Okay. <laughs> uh, Look. <laughs> they generally come from smaller regions within a certain IGP territory that are particularly special because of their climatic and geological characteristics, <laughs> quality, and originality of local winemaking traditions. They also must follow stricter production regulations than IGP wines. A DOC wine can be promoted to DOCG if it has been a DOC for at least 10 years. You got to make sure you get get in there long enough and then then they'll give you the promotion. Yeah. That's exactly right. (laughs) You work your way up. Yeah. (laughs) In addition to fulfilling the requisites for DOC wines, DOCG must pass stricter analysis prior to commercialization, including... A tasting by a specifically appointed committee. No, that's just a bunch of assholes who just wanted to get drunk. <laughs> eh, maybe. They're like, oh, oh, you know what? We gotta make sure we drink some first. Good, good. Uh, DOCG wines must also demonstrate a superior commercial success. As of 2016, there existed 332 DOCs and 73 DOCGs for a total of 405 DOPs. Wow, the acronyms. Get down, get down with DOP. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, normally, we would try to dive into all these subcategories within a particular style. But Today, there's 405 of them. Yeah, like, not so much. Come on, guys. Uh, I'm just down. two of them. I just, just got another, I just got another beer. We're ready. No. Uh, <laughs> today, however, that would be impossible in a single episode. Therefore, we're going to attempt to look at uh, some of the most popular, most influential, and important subcategories of Italian wines centered around the top grapes used. So, uh, is it San Sangiovese? Sangiovese. Okay. Uh, that is a red Italian wine grape variety that derives its name from the Latin sanguis jovis? Question mark? Blood of Jupiter? The blood of Jupiter. I what? actually didn't read the next sentence in the doc and went, sounds like should be the blood of Jupiter. <laughs> Sanguination. Indeed. That's an awesome name. Uh, though it's the grape of most central Italy from uh, Romania, I guess, down to uh, Lazio, Campania. No, it's pronounced Romangia. Yeah, no. <laughs> absolutely <She's>... not. <laughs> I, I, I didn't look at the stream, but I'm pretty sure she's like staring daggers at me right now, right? I am trying not even to That's look. That's just me. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, Campania in Sicily, outside Italy, it is most famous as the only component of uh, Brunello di Montalcino and Rosso di Mont- uh, Montalcino, and the main component of the blend uh, Chianti Carmignano uh, Vino Nobile. Sorry, guys. No, <laughs> Nobile, maybe? Di Monte Pulciano and Morellino de, de Scansano. They they they're not gonna work here anymore. I'm That's impressed. <laughs> yeah, I took half a semester of Italian uh, before oh, I got. What, well, but, there we go. Then. Before I I was like the I, I just the only thing I can remember is like okay the one single C is a ch sound. Yeah. <laughs> and so and we're all, all doing remember, panini wrong. All I remember is you coming back and going. 
No, it's a full immersion course, and there are two actual Italians in this class. Yeah, no, it was bullshit. That's why I left. She's like, this is bullshit. I'm dropping this class. (laughs) Yeah. I was so excited, and then they're like, and everybody's talking about, like, oh, well, on my last trip to Italy, and I'm like, whatever, you guys. This is 101. Anyway. um, (laughs) So, uh, all of those words, uh, they can be used to make varietal wines such as Sangiovese, di Romagna, and the modern Super Tuscan wines, like Tinanello. Say Tinanello, also the name of the brand of the handbags that I, I say, like. They also make purses. <laughs> oh, yeah, like how about that? I've got like three of those bags. <laughs> anyway, um, Sangiovese was already well known by the 16th century. The former is well known as an ancient variety in Tuscany. The latter is an almost extinct relic from the Calabria, the toe of Italy. At least 14 Sangiovese clones exist, of which uh, Brunello is one of the best regarded. Young Sangiovese has fresh fruity flavors of strawberry and a little spiciness, but it readily takes on oaky, even tarry flavors when mm. aged in barrels. That sounds delicious. I, I, that doesn't sound terrible. <laughs> no. Uh, while not as aromatic as other red wine varieties... Such You're as, speaking more of my language. <laughs> such as Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Syrah. Sangiovese uh, often has a flavor profile of sour red cherries with earthy aromas and tea leaf notes. This sounds like my kind of wine, you guys. Um, <laughs> wines from made from Sangiovese usually have medium plus tannins and high acidity. That's the only downside I'm seeing. Okay, next up we have... Um, Jesus. Monte... Monte Pulciano. It's a red Italian wine grape variety that is most noted for being the primary grape behind the DOCG wine Offita Rosa or Rosso. Uh, Monte Monte Pulciano de Abruzzo Colline Terramane. I'm sorry. Uh, Rosso Conero or Chenero, whatever. Do we need to record like just a a big apology to all Italian speakers before this episode. Yes. Like, before you start this episode, if you speak Italian, we're going to butcher it. All right. Um, the grape is widely planted throughout central and southern Italy, most notably in Abruzzo, uh, La- Lazio, Marche, Molise, Umbria, and Apulia, and is also, and is a permitted variety of DOC wines produced, um, in 20 of Italy's 95 provinces. Jesus, that's a lot of provinces. Yeah. I was like, I didn't even know that. Uh, Very provincial. <laughs> Montepulciano uh, is rarely found in northern Italy because the grape has a tendency to ripen late and can be excessively green if harvested too early. Huh. Uh, when fully ripened, Montepulciano can produce deeply colored wines with moderate acidity and noticeable extract and alcohol levels. Hmm. So it'll get you drunk? Sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> Alright, the next one up is the uh, Cotterato. Uh, is a white Italian wine grape planted primarily in Sicily, where it's most widely planted. Um, it's the most widely planted grape. Overproduction of Cotterato has been a substantial contributor to the European wine lake problem. What? Wine lake? <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming the wine lake comes from the fact that You've got a lot of wine that, like, you you basically got a ton of it coming out of there. Huh. But okay. I don't know how that would be a problem, really. But 
Yeah, I, I do. Well, and that's where you get the earlier categories of it doesn't necessarily match up with. Okay, so you get all of this this wine that's coming out, and you say, okay, it's not necessarily good enough to sell as one of our best wines, so we just bottle it and sell it to the Americans in a, a really crappy wine. Or um, what I'm reading here is that they sell it as industrial alcohol and they actually call it emergency distillation. Oh, my gosh. So they just make brandy (laughs) out of this stuff. I mean, sure. When in a pinch. Yeah. They in European countries up until around 2007 were making 1.7 million more bottles of wine than they could sell. Wow. Wow. So it's basically this will be a joke that two people get it's like reaching for your bottle of bear huggers <laughs> i am not one of those yes. two people all right <laughs> i think it's a one person joke actually yeah i have no idea either it was a joke for we'll me. get we'll get you guys there <laughs> okay um all right so uh the catarato can make full-bodied wines with lemon notes which sounds delicious Uh, In the Etna DOC, the grape is often blended with uh, Manella, Bianca, and Caracante? Question mark? Uh, In Italy, there were 63,290 acres of Merlot grapes planted in 2000, uh, with more than two-thirds of Italian Merlot being used in IGP blends, such as the so-called Super Tuscans. Uh, bum, 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 bum. That's what I was waiting on. Versus uh, being used in classified DOC or DOCG wines. This is because Merlot is not a traditional wine grape and was instead introduced to Italy around the 1850s under the name Bordeaux. Not the same Bordeaux you would think of. Um, traditional traditional for Italy. Yeah. Because uh, like, I hear that and I go like, wait, I'm not supposed to be eating these grapes? Right. Uh, similar to the French name which we know of more, uh, but spelled in an Italian manner. <laughs> an Italian manner sounds like a, uh, like, it's like, oh, the Bordeaux. That's how we spell it here in my large Italian villa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, really? How do you spell things there? However I feel like I'm drinking. As opposed to the French one where they're just throwing a bunch of vowels and an X in there. <laughs> um, no, they're throwing those letters there. They're just not saying them. <laughs> Uh, I'll... Somebody that that speaks French is getting paid by the letter. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> it's all about like maybe newspaper stuff or something. I yeah. Don't know. Um, a large portion of Merlot is planted in the Friuli wine region, uh, where it's made as a varietal or sometimes blended with Cabernet Sauvignon or Cabernet Franc. In other parts of Italy, such as the Marema Coast in Tuscany. It's often blended with Sangiovese uh, to give the wine a similar softening effect as the Bordeaux blends. Italian Merlots are often characterized by their light bodies and herbal notes. Merlot's low acidity serves as a balance for the higher acidity in many Italian wine grapes, with the grape often being used in blends in the Veneto, Alto, Adige, and Umbria uh, global warming is potentially having an influence on Italian Merlot as more cooler climate regions in northern Italy are being able to ripen the grape successfully, while other regions already plant, uh, planted and are 
excuse me, while other regions already planted are encountering issues with overripeness. Global wabu? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, according to Master of Wine, uh, is it Johnsis, maybe? John C? Uh, Robinson? Normally, that, that's a no, title no. that I was like, oh, how do I get that job? You know what? I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Too pretentious for me. <laughs> some of the higher quality Italian Merlots are often from vineyards planted with cuttings sourced from France. Robinson describes the style of fru- Fruili Merlots from uh, regarded estates as having potentially a Pomerol quality to them, while Merlot merlots from the warm plains of the veneto can often be overripe with yields giving them a sweet and sour quality you uh the strada del merlot mm, goes with my chicken yeah the strada del merlot is a popular tourist route through italian merlot regions along the uh isonzo river hmm excellent well trebbiano is an Italian wine grape and one of the most widely planted grape varieties in the world. It gives good yields but tends to yield undistinguished wines. It can be fresh and fruity but does not keep long. Also known as Ugni Blanc, it has many other names reflecting a family of local subtypes, particularly in Italy and France. Its high acidity makes it important in cognac and Armagnac production. So I'm pretty sure that's probably where most of the Trebbiano is going to go is distilled. The Trebbiano family account for around a third of all white wine in Italy. You it is, keep saying that, and all I can think of is, how you doing? Oh, yeah, saying, no, I Joey Trebbiano. Yeah, Joey, Joey Trebbiani. Oh, but, it's Trebbiani. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it is mentioned in more than 80 of Italy's DOCs, although it just has seven of its own. I couldn't say them, so I deleted them. <laughs> Perhaps the most successful Trebbiano-based blend are the Orvieto, or Orvieto uh, whites of Umbria, which use a local clone called Pro... Procancio. Procancio? Procancio? Procianico. Right? All right. I don't know. I'll, I'll defer to the lady that's actually head Italian. I dropped sort out of, of German. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I gotta look this up now. <laughs> Here's another place that uh, all that Trebbiano is going. It's also used to produce balsamic vinegar. Hmm. See, I thought they used special balsamic if they turned into vinegar. I don't think so. <laughs> Barbera is a red Italian grape that, uh, as of 2000, was the third most planted red grape variety in Italy after Sangiovese and Monte Monte. Pulciano. See, produces... I mix I, I mix my Barbera with uh, with a healthy dose of Hannah. I was waiting. I was oh. waiting for it. As soon as he said it, I was waiting for the shoe to drop. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. It produces good yields and is known for a deep color, full body, low tannins, and high levels of acid. Centuries-old vines still exist in many regional vineyards and allow for production of long-aging, robust red wines with intense fruit and enhanced tannic content. The best-known appellation is the DOCG Barbera di Asti in the Piedmont region. The highest quality Niza DOCG wines are produced within a subzone of the Barbera di Asti production area. When young, the wines offer a very intense aroma of fresh cherries and blackberries. In the lightest versions, notes of cherries, raspberries, and blueberries with notes of blackberries and black cherries in wines 
of more ripe grapes. Mm. Many producers employ the use of toasted or seared over a fire oak barrels, which produces for increased complexity, aging potential, and hints of vanilla notes. Also, a more bourbon-like flavor. <laughs> the lightest versions are generally known for flavors and aromas of fresh fruits and dried fruits and not recommended for cellaring, actually. Wines with better balance between acid and fruit, often with the addition of oak and having a high alcohol content, are more capable of cellaring. These wines often result from reduced yield viniculture methods. So um, you're going to have to, if you want to age it, you're going to have to reduce the amount of juice that you're actually going to get out. Chardonnay is a green-skinned green skinned, uh, <laughs> variety of grape used in the production of white wines. The variety originated in the Burgundy wine region of in- eastern France, but is now grown wherever wine is produced from England to New Zealand. I was reading a little bit on this actually outside, and Chardonnay is kind of the one grape that they say. Once you start growing Chardonnay, you start entering into the world's wine world. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, if you're growing some other types of grapes, you're not really seen as a true wine maker chardonnay is kind of the rite of passage Hmm. Uh, the chardonnay grape itself is neutral with many of the flavors commonly associated with the wine being derived from such influences like terroir and oak chardonnay wines tend to be medium to light body and noticeably acidic and flavors of green plum apple and pear in warmer locations the flavors become more citrus and peach with melon while in very warm locations uh, more fig and tropical fruit notes such as banana and mango come out wines that have gone through malolactic fermentation tend to have softer acidity and fruit flavors with a buttery mouthfeel and hazelnut notes all of chardonnay that sounds is, great <laughs> yeah. chardonnay is an important component of many sparkling wines around the world including champagne and francia corda in Italy, Fran- Francia Corda, Francia, probably. Chardonnay has a long history in Italy, but for a large part of it, the grape was commonly confused with Pinot Blanc, often with both varieties interplanted in the same vineyard and blended together. This happened despite the fact that Chardonnay grapes get a more golden yellow in color close to harvest time and can be visually distinguished from Pinot Blanc. In the tr- Trentino Alto, Adige, uh, ooh, I don't know how to say those words. Uh, Suditrio? Sure. Sudite? Suditrio. Suditrol is is what it looks like to me, but that's probably wrong. I don't know know about the umlaut. (laughs) (laughs) Umlauts are where I give up. Yeah. Uh, In these regions, uh, or in this region, this confusion appeared in the synonymous names for each grape, with Pinot Blanc being known as Weissburgunder, which is a white burgundy, and Chardonnay being known as Gilbert Weissburgunder, or a golden white burgundy. So the the name's very similar. Hmm. By the late 20th century, more concentrated efforts were put into identifying Chardonnay and making pure varietal versions of the wine. You know, pure white. That's that's what they were looking for in those. No. In 1984... The roll of a newspaper, drive down to Presensburg and slap you in the face. In 1984, it was granted its first DOC in the province of South Tyrol. Tylenol. Um, (laughs) By 2000. I I saw saw South Tyrol. I was like, wait, is that the southern guy who who taught Arya how to fight with a sword? Oh. By 2000, it was Italy's fourth most widely planted white wine grape, which is interesting considering it came from outside of Italy. Yeah. 
Though many varietal forms of Chardonnay are produced and the numbers are increasing, for most of its history in Italian winemaking, Chardonnay was a blending grape. It even blended into a dry white Zinfandel-style Nebbiolo wine that was made from white juice of the red Nebbiolo grape prior to being dyed with skin contact. Isn't that the planet where the Gungans live? <laughs> uh, Nebbiolo has a uh, almost rose-like nose on it that grape does i don't think we actually talk about it here um mm. but it's just it's want you very... to say they're the gungans of, of grapes <laughs> the gungans of grapes um uh. died with skin contact meaning that the the grape of the nebbiolo um is red but you have the juice is white and so you you died a little bit by giving just a little skin contact most Chardonnay plantings are located in the northern wine regions though plantings can be found throughout italy as far south as sicily uh, and Apulia, sure, in Piedmont and Tuscany. The grape, about halfway down Italy's uh, boot there, if you will. <laughs> uh, the grape is being planted in sites that are less favorable for the Dol- Dolcetto and Sangiovese, respectively. In Lombardy, the, grapes, the grape is often used for Spumanti. Huh. And in Ven- Veneto, it is often blended with Gargan. Garganga. Garganga. <laughs> to give Gengar. more weight. Uh, yeah. It, more weight. I'm, I'm looking at more of a Star Wars Episode 1. <laughs> um, the gang- Gungans. Or... Oh. Again, the Gungans. Gungans, See? yeah. They are, it's the Gungans of grapes. I mean, I Gengar right? is literally a Pokemon, so. <laughs> Gengar is also a Pokemon, but he's a ghost type. He doesn't have anything to do with the water. Oh, my gosh. Or racist caricatures. Uh, it will actually give some more weight and structure to the wine. Moving on to Prosecco. Mm. Prosecco is an Italian white wine. Also, a, 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 well, we'll just go on here. <laughs> Prosecco controlled designation of origin can be Spumante, which is a sparkling wine, uh, Frizzante, which is a simile, semi-sparkling wine, or uh, Tranquillo. Maybe still. drink kilo. Uh, yeah, and you still. actually you do the L's in Italian. Okay, say them both. Yeah, it is made from Glera grapes. So we're talking about prosecco as a wine, but Glera uh, is is now the actual grape uh, that's used, formerly known as prosecco grapes. Oh, was it at another point known as an unpronounceable symbol? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other grape varieties may now be used, however, in prosecco. Um, the following varieties are traditionally used with Glera up to a maximum of 15% of the total. Veradiso, Biacetta, Tevagiano, uh, Gianna, uh, Pereira, Glera Longa, Chardonnay, Pinot Bianco, uh, Pinot Grigio, and Pinot Noir. You're doing you really go. well until you get to Pereira. Pierre! <laughs> There's like three consonants and three vowels. That's not a good word. Was he suddenly running for president? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> that's, that's actually a deep cut joke to someone who may or may not listen to the show. But <laughs> if he finds this episode randomly, Joe's going to be very appreciative. Yeah. Uh, the name is derived from the Italian village of Prosecco near Trieste. 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 There you go. Where the grape and wine originated. Prosecco DOC is produced in nine provinces, spanning the Veneto and Friuli, uh, Venezia, 
Gilu Gulia regions. Prosecco Superior DOCG comes in two varieties, uh, which can be made from the Trevio, <laughs> Treviso <laughs> province in, of Veneto on the hills between the towns of uh, that places. are north of Treviso. And the <laughs> smaller Asolo Prosecco Superior produced near the town of Asolo. See, Casey doesn't want to sound dumb, where the rest of us just try to go through that. I'll bite the bullet. I'll chew on it. Like, oh. Con, Congoiano and Valdobenandine. I'll stumble through it. There might be a joke somewhere that comes out of Valdo Biadene. Valdo Biadente. There's no Because I, I know it's Dene, but I saw it. I was like, mm, Al dente. Al dente. <laughs> <laughs> One of those few Italian things that we terms you know. <laughs> with bite. <laughs> For some reason, listening or like writing all all this down and everything, I kept getting the word chiupene uh, in my head, and I could not figure out like where I heard it or why. It was like just an earworm, and I had to go look it up. It's a fish stew. And I don't know why the word for a fish stew kept coming into my head, but that every it time sounds I saw super Italian, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That sounds pretty Nordic to me. Uh, well, <laughs> a fish stew does sound pretty Nordic. Well, the word for it, I guess. Yeah. Well, Prosecco, uh, last thing here, Prosecco is the main ingredient of the Bellini cocktail and can be a less expensive substitute for champagne. It's also the key ingredient of a spritz, a cocktail popular in northern Italy. I do not like Prosecco. Right. We had it at a wedding and I was like, nope. It's your, uh, <laughs> your stand-in champagne. Yeah, not a fan. Why did we not get a Zap Brannigan? I don't know. I'm, I'm, like, we don't always think of these things as all. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that does it for wine, but that was we a it. for Italian wine. That's that's a that's a lot heavy. And we made, we uh, made it through, and I'm I'm only half lit. No, I'm pretty lit. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um. We need to, uh, I swear, on all of these, we need a disclaimer at the top of the episode, like, we are sorry to all, <laughs> insert language, speakers uh, today. <laughs> we don't speak that... German or Italian or French or, or Spanish or, or English or yeah. <laughs> Greek, you know. Just... We speak American. Which is sad. We speak common tongue. It's a miracle we can do that. And not always super well, depending on the day. Look, I only speak Zandalari. Uh, anyway, what, <laughs> yes. what are we drinking that's not helping our tongue use? Yeah. Drink with me, friend. Brittany, what are you drinking? Well, so I'm not really drinking anything, but I'm still she's, to style. She's drinking the blood of ripened grapes. I'm literally <laughs> eating this giant thing of grapes we got from the store. Uh, I, I just look down and just see grapes. Like, Brittany, <laughs> you don't drink grapes. They're not finished yet. <laughs> this is pre-fermentation wine. Um, but no, I, it's just a big thing of white and red grapes, and I've been eating the crap out of it. So, <laughs> Oh, she can get both types. Yeah. Fancy. But uh, they're a pretty good snack. So, yeah, I just figured, you know what? This is kind of with style. So that works. <laughs> All right. So, Justin, uh, you you drink into style? I am. And I'm ready. This is a reference that, like, only three people get. 
which is pretty much the theme of today's episode. <laughs> uh, I'm drinking like I'm ready to, to chain hill some heroic dungeons in World of Warcraft. Uh, those of you who don't know that story, when I decided I would take up healing in the MMO World of Warcraft, I thought I should go along and drink with it too. So, you know, because I was playing with friends. And I had a bottle of flat Prosecco that Casey had left. Well, I got it fizzy this time. Uh, I've got, I guess, it's it's a Prosecco. It's a DOC Brut. Brut? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Brut. But it's from Candoni. Uh, and it's a Prosecco. It's a 11% uh, ABV. Uh, no IBUs. And... Uh, they, have back, they have in the back, rich in Italian heritage, Condoni continues the legacy of not only our family, but also that of the Etruscans, a vibrant culture that lived in Italy before the rise of the Roman Empire. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. They have no idea what that, that civilization was like. Don't lie to me. <laughs> Their marketing person did. Hmm. He did lie to me. However, um, compared to most other... Um, most other wines I've had, at least it's a bit, it's a bit sweeter, uh, so it's a little more palatable to me. Uh, I'm able to get down most of this bottle. Wow. Most of this bottle. Well, it, it like, looks very it's, uh, white. Two, like. two third. Like I'm on my third non-wine glass of. Uh, it's it's very white. Like I keep pouring it, and I think it's clear. So, until I can get like just a little bit of something behind it, I go, oh no no no, not quite, but. Real close. Looks like white grape uh, juice. So when you say brute, that's also like the hottest new IPA style from the West Coast is brute, meaning it's super clean and super clear. Huh. Well, and super dry. Yeah, brute means dry. It's it's the opposite of of sweet. So yeah. this is this is in fact sweet. So I don't uh, know. Why yeah, it's... that's the problem. Yeah, because it's not a definitive term. It's just. People look for brute. Like brute champagne is supposed to be the best champagne, but people have no idea what brute means. So <laughs> I am know, brute. They just know. <laughs> oh, brute's supposed to be really good. Well, this is. Uh, I will say it does have a neat little, uh, neat little bottle where it's uh, a design on the label where it's like, you know, old uh, old jar painting but that looks clearly much more Greek than it does Roman. Yeah. I know. I have many problems with their marketing, but <laughs> say oh, they do put what I'm pretty sure is fake distress on it, so it looks like there's a chip <laughs> missing on the. Oh, jeez! You're going that extra mile. I appreciate that. Just I do appreciate that, but everything else was. Yeah, uh, I don't hate this wine. It's about the only wine that I've ever actually been able to to drink. So that's it. It's fizzy. That helps. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I like champagne, Casey. I've never had it. Oh. <laughs> well, missed that episode already, though. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I have been uh, not exactly drinking the style. Gasp. So uh, again, trying to clear out that fridge. Guys. Gotta gotta clean out this fridge. So I've had a uh, menagerie of things. I was still finishing off my. Uh, first beer from the first episode we're rolling into this but for this one i was drinking a tinta rosa from commonwealth brewing company this uh 
beer came to me via smoke. It has been nope. sitting in the fridge all this time since he was in Cincinnati. Is it tainted? No, no, it is not. It is not tainted with smoke. It is not. It is not from the taint. Smoke tainted. It's not the smoke taint. It was actually pretty good because I was eating it or drinking it while I was eating some grapes. And uh, overall, I was I was feeling the episode with you guys, but then I ran out of that beer and I needed another beer. So I decided to grab something else that's been in the fridge for way too long. Budweiser. And I grabbed a Jet Black Heart from BrewDog. Uh, yeah. Has a nice little slogan on it here. If I can find it, Blacken Your Soul. It's an oatmeal milk stout with natural vanilla flavor. And it. Uh, this was extremely weird because it's in a 12-ounce can, but it was only, I think, 9 ounces of liquid. What? Yeah. <laughs> Was that intentional? Yes. yes. Really? Uh, because it is nitroed. Uh, oh. Their, their okay. defense on that, and the can was extremely pressurized. You probably heard me open it on stream, and it was like, <laughs> You did hear that. Like It didn't sound like a good can popping. It wasn't that satisfying. <laughs> it was more of a violent, <laughs> But uh, that was extremely off of uh, the theme of the episode, whereas the Gosa, uh, made with plums, pomegranate, raspberry, and orange while mm. eating grapes, was extremely with the episode. So that at sounds least, delightful. At least I felt. But the, the Brewdog Jet Black Heart is the first uh, nitro beer I've had in a long time that was really good, actually. Like, big vanilla creaminess to it. Mm. Delightful. So, uh... Mm. Casey, I know you had to have been drinking to style. What, uh, of course. Regalus, what were you? Uh, today is uh, the only, there were only two Italian wines in my local liquor store. Two, well, let me rephrase it. Really two wines that were of a DOC from uh, from my local liquor store. Uh, two that, and both of them were from the DOCG of Chianti. So this is the Chianti Rufina from Nipozano. Uh, re- <laughs> I was like, no, Nip, 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 where? Nipop, <laughs> uh, This is a 2013 Reserva Chianti. Um, so it's almost a little watery. It had a really big nose on it, um, but it's kind of it goes back to that what would happen if you added just a little bit of water to your wine hmm. uh, and back it off a bit. Not that it's a bad thing. It just makes it pretty approachable, um, especially for foods. I had some cheeses earlier and I actually had went out and got spaghetti just because it was wine night. Sure. Just and do a whole Italian theme. Yeah. Why not? Right. And then I picked up at the supermarket a frozen uh, in the frozen section, a tiramisu. And we got mm, that. And, yeah. Now I want spaghetti. Man, this was good with the tiramisu because it's a very dry wine, but it was it, it's very berry like. So it's got a lot of those berries and cherries flavors and like fresh cherries and fresh berries, not dried fruits, mm. um, which made it really good with the sweetness and the bitterness of the um, tiramisu. So pairing those two things together was top notch. I, I would I would do that again for sure. Um, it wasn't expensive either, which I liked. Uh, most of the wines that I try to get are in that. $14 area and this mm. was like 20 but 
as I was looking online, I think my store for once in a lifetime had it actually a little bit cheaper than what it was meant to be because it was like in the twenty four to thirty dollar range online. Because mm-hmm. so I was happy to, to get a deal a in Eastern Kentucky for once in my life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Usually you're paying because uh, they gotta strap everything onto the back of a donkey and get it through <laughs> those mountain passes. Yep. Um, had a little bit of a barrel character, but it's going to sound weird. Almost at the end, a tequila barrel character to it. Hmm. Just we- just a weirdness, a lightness. Okay. It's different, but I like it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I am All intrigued. Right. And I've had like half a glass short of a whole bottle and only now starting to get the headache. So. You're going to say and the well. half a glass is currently in his glass. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, the rest the rest is here. It's going to be finished by the end of the night. Guys, um, I want I'm to using say, my BAG since we're on acronyms. My big A glass. Say <laughs> that your your actual red wine glass. Is it is yeah. it one of those glasses where you just like it screws onto the top of the bottle and you're just tipping the bottle <laughs> back? I, no, but it will hold an entire wine bottle, a bottle of wine plus some room at top up the top. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. I want that big brandy glass from Adam's family. The gargantuan yeah. fishbowl brandy glass. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. It's like the only way to drink brandy. I don't know what you guys are talking about. It's got an aerate. Uh, guys, I'm proud of myself. I went I went this whole episode. All these references to red wine. Oh. And oh not no. once. Not once did I. And we're gonna leave it at that. So We're gonna close it and you're not gonna. Uh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not for not a minute there. I thought I thought the power had went out for it, but, but oh. it, it happened in everyone's minds. <laughs> yeah, no, we heard it already in our heads. Uh, well, that was a really interesting episode. Like I, we're you know the rest of us aren't really wine uh, at all, <laughs> wine people in the least. So it's it's always interesting to learn more about it. Um, and and you know apologies again on the uh, Italian pronunciations of uh, anything. Apologize <laughs> to our Italian listeners. Or anyone who knows Italian at all. And any of our... Uh, just apologize. I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> any of our Gaelic <laughs> listeners. Yeah, just just all the listeners. We, we apologize. Uh, the fact that you went through all that to get to this point. Uh, you, d- you deserve something. <laughs> Indeed. What is that something? How about a drink in Asheville, North Carolina? Oh. Mm. How about? How about that? <laughs> <sighs> all right. Well, guys. I think that about does us. Yeah. I think so. Let's go before the weather claims me. Alrighty. Well, you can visit us at haveadrinkshow.com for useful links and info about us. Also, look for Have a Drink Show on social media and twitch.tv. Uh, you can just you can ask a question, uh, leave some general feedback, or tell us your favorite drink, uh, or complain about our pronunciation. <laughs> you, can use, you can go to feedback at haveadrinkshow.com to do that. You can also use the feedback page on the website. Yeah, we'll leave you guys always questioning whether or not we are mockingly mispronouncing all the names of scotches or grapes, or if it's just we really don't know how to say them. We got nothing. Yeah. We really don't know better. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. <laughs> it's the latter. <laughs> all joking. The ladders. <laughs> the ladders. All joking and fun aside, guys, I'd like to remind everyone: please drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, and uh, check us out next Saturday for our next live episode, which hopefully isn't as uh, crazy with the words. No, um, no it will be. <laughs> uh, Always is. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh, it'll remember be old to- English. <laughs> yeah, it will be. Remember to check out patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. 
And once again, I'm Brittany Lee Walker. I'm Justin Frazier. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>